Welcome to another episode of Being Human. I'm delighted to say I'm here with Ryan A. Bush. He is a philosopher, uh, multiple author, uh, the co-founder of Designing the Mind, and a part-time chief designer at a startup. Uh, Ryan, big warm welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Richard. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, uh, it's it's fantastic to have you here. And like I was saying just before we came on, I'd had a, a look through your book. I haven't read all of it, but becoming who you or become who you are, should I say? And some very interesting ideas there, specifically in the realm of, of depression, which I uh, really appreciated. So I can't wait to get into all of that. Um, but before we sort of start with with the new book, which is available for for pre order, isn't it? Uh, Become who you are. Um, yeah, for those people who haven't heard of you, give give people a bit of a background to how you you came to be writing books about becoming uh, who you are. Yeah, it's been an interesting path. I kind of it started when I was a teenager, basically just very curious about my own mind and kind of tinkering around with my own mental patterns, trying to change my emotional trajectories and and just very introspective, very much observing what's going on in my own mind and uh, ignoring most of what was going on in the world around me. But uh, that's just kind of how I'm naturally wired. And, and this gradually led into an interest in philosophy and psychology and uh, a lot of reading related to our minds and how they work, and how happiness and well-being work, the good life. Um, and that led me to uh, things like stoicism and and you know fields like evolutionary psychology and and cognitive behavioral therapy um and so i was developing a lot of these interests sort of in my free time and i decided to go to school for design and specifically uh product design and so that i felt like blended my sort of analytical interests with my create you know creative interests a little better than an academic path for example and so um, with that thread, I kind of started working with uh, a number of startups designing technology, products, uh, software, um, buildings now. And so uh, at, at a certain point, I, I figured out a way to sort of blend these interests and uh, combine my design passions with my intellectual passions and, uh, and hence designing the mind. So I, uh, you know, at the time I went part time at my job, um, you know, took a 60% pay cut so I could focus on writing this first book and, uh, you know, finally put it out there. And it has done really well and brought in an audience and a community centered around what I call psychotecture in the book, which is kind of this process of designing and modifying your own psychological software. And, uh, and that's led me to create a number of other products and, and online programs, a membership community, and now this newest book, Become Who You Are. Right, right. Become Who You Are. And, and so, yeah, so what, I suppose, how would you describe the evolution of where you, you first started with the first book and designing your mind and so on to, to what you're playing with now in the, in the latest book? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. The first book was very much centered around kind of the micro habits that make up our minds, the the chains of thoughts and biases and emotional reactions and habits and behaviors, um, and and how you go in and actually change those psychological algorithms. Um, so this new book is, it takes a little bit of a step back and looks at 
you know, what are we what are we designing our minds for? What's the end goal? How does how does our actual well-being work? And so uh, become who you are is looking at, you know, what really produces the highest peaks of well-being versus the the lows of depression and, and how we can use this process of psychotecture that I laid out in the first book to sort of work our way up the scale of well-being. Right. Well, let's let's start there then. So how, how do you define well-being? Yeah. So, so happiness is, has become a word that just gets thrown around in every way possible, and it's kind of meaningless in some ways. And so what I do is I lay out sort of three dimensions, and I, I use this model to uh, describe how this works. So if you imagine there's kind of a chessboard in front of you, and there's an x-axis, the left and right, and that represents pleasure and pain. So if you go further to the right, that's more pleasure in your life, left is more pain. Got it. Um, so then the y-axis, that's sort of moving further away from you or closer on the chessboard. This is the loss and gain dimension. And so this is all about, you know, sometimes we will sacrifice something in the short term, you know, sacrifice our pleasure in order to experience more long-term gain and success. And what I argue is that between these two dimensions, most of us are sort of navigating our lives on this map, this chessboard, where we're trying to balance pleasure and gain and, and sort of achieve happiness in this way. And the problem with this is that very often the map doesn't really correspond that closely to the territory. We will you know, do something that should make us very happy. We'll experience some huge success or, you know, all this pleasure in our lives. And, and we'll end up saying, oh, that's, that's not really, I'm, I'm still not satisfied. Um, you know, lottery winners, for example, they very often, uh, statistically, they're, they're back to their same levels of happiness a year after they won. And so um, basically, it, it points out that, that happiness works in this counterintuitive way, and we're using a bad map to navigate it. And so what I introduce is this third dimension. And so if you imagine extruding mountains and valleys out of that chessboard, so it's now a three-dimensional topographical chessboard, um, this, is, uh, this is sort of the hidden dimension that we're, most of us are not paying attention to that is actually pulling the strings of our happiness. And it's responsible for both the, the highest peaks of happiness, what the, what the ancient Greeks called eudaimonia, uh, and, and the lowest lows, which I think corresponds to what we now call clinical depression. And I think uh, really achieving happiness successfully is, is all about moving up the, these mountains or, or you know, moving away from the valleys and not paying as much attention to the pleasure and the gain except as sort of instrumental uh, means to achieving higher, uh, higher position in the Z-axis. Right. Okay. <laughs> so it's a lot there. And, and so let's start, let's start with that word eudaimonia. What does that mean? Yeah. So, so this is a term that was used by Socrates, Aristotle, and the Stoics. And uh, it's sort of treated as the, the holy grail of well-being. And it, it's a much deeper kind of happiness than just how I feel right now in the moment. Uh, you know, they, they talked about eudaimonia as being a state where you know, you are highly approving of yourself, essentially. And, and, you know, the reason is because they all argue that that eudaimonia and virtue, or arete, that they called it, were intimately tied together. I mean, basically, they, they went hand in hand at all times. And so 
it, it was sort of a given for them that if you act more virtuously, uh, you're going to be more deeply happy and satisfied in your life. Um, and and uh, yeah, th this led to a whole sort of virtue ethics and a lot of ideas in the ethical space that um, you know we've deviated from, I think, in modern ethics a little bit. But this idea that our character is the ultimate uh, determinant of our happiness and that that's what we should really be primarily paying attention to as we're trying to improve our lives. Um, yeah. Right. And so by developing our character, we, we develop a greater approval of ourselves, which takes us closer to eudaimonia. And in your model, that's the, high, that's the, the highest level of well-being. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and you know, this contrasts pretty well with uh, depression and what we know about depression. So, for example, we, we look at depressed patients. They, uh, at least in severe cases, they very often believe they are worthless, unlovable, incompetent. They have these uh, beliefs of themselves where they are highly disapproving of themselves. And, um, you know, sometimes this is treated like a symptom of depression, like depression produces these negative thoughts and beliefs. But I think it's very likely that our minds are sort of regulating our mood based on these beliefs. And that's why, you know, the, the ancient Greeks thought that, that our virtues were what was determining our, our happiness ultimately. Right. And are you also saying that in order for us to change these beliefs about ourselves, we, we engage in character development? Or are you saying something else? Yeah, yeah, essentially. I mean, we, I, I think it's a mix. It depends on which stage you're at. I think if you are actually depressed, it starts at a very low level uh, process where you're basically saying, you know, if I'm struggling to get out of bed every day, for example, um, you want to create an activity schedule where you're essentially gradually working your way up to doing more things that potentially demonstrate some virtue to yourself, right? So, you know, you want to say, oh, you know, I, I'm at least going to get out of bed every day and take a shower. That shows my own brain more virtue than if I just stayed in bed. Or, you know, if you're a little higher up, you can say, I'm going to go on a walk and read a book. Uh, and so that's kind of what the process looks like at the lower levels. At the higher levels, it's kind of about crafting the domains in your life to bring out more of these unique strengths that you possess. You know, virtue, I think it has a kind of outdated connotation and kind of sounds preachy to us today. Yeah, but get, it get really, I, Sundays, sort of, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it can mean anything from compassion to courage to charisma, creativity, right? These are all unique strengths or virtues that you may have a collection of that you've kind of known you were good at since you were young. And uh, if you're anything like me, you'll, you'll find that the best times in your life were the times when those had a clear expression, those strengths were coming out every day. And the worst times are those where they were totally suppressed and didn't have an outlet. Right. And so, so I, I say, so at the lower levels, it's about just doing something that gives yourself evidence that you're virtuous in some way. And that could be taking as little as taking a shower or getting out of bed. And at the higher levels, it's like inquiring into what these strengths are and, and, and engaging in activities that allow you to demonstrate those strengths to a greater degree. Right. Engaging in activities and, and looking at the larger domains in your life. So, for example, your, your work, your relationships, your communities, saying, how can I craft these to better 
serve as vessels for my virtues. So, you know, if your work right now, if you're, you know, if you're maybe okay at your job, but you're mostly just doing things that help the company churn out profits, there's no creativity, there's no, um, you know, the things that you're best at, aren't, they aren't really coming out on a regular basis, right? Asking, you know, do I need to make changes in my job? Do I need to make a whole career change? Or do I need to leave the workforce altogether and, and design my own organization that will serve as that uh, vessel to bring out my strengths? And so um, that's kind of the, the higher levels. You know, when I started designing the mind, in many ways, I was saying, like, how can I take the 10 things I'm good at and put them together in one place or the 10 things that I'm passionate about? And, uh, and I think that's, that's paid off in a, a very deep sense. I mean, I've never been more fulfilled than what I'm doing right now, specifically because I think it does require my unique personal strengths every single day. And so there is a there is a spectrum here and, and different strategies along the way, but I think it's all one process ultimately. Right. And you said two things there. You said passionate and good at. Like is one more important than the other or what Yeah, it's a good point. I think they mostly go hand in hand, but really we we are talking about virtues. So I guess um, you know, good at is is takes precedence. But ultimately what I what I encourage people to do is both look at what you are good at, right? Look at your strengths and look at what you admire in other people. Those are your values. And, you know, you're, you're kind of looking at the overlap of these things. So, for example, if you've got a list of, you know, 10 people that you admire more than anyone else, whether that's people in your real life, you know, historical figures, fictional characters, right? You want to really examine and list out what are the specific traits that I admire most in these people. Uh, and, and what do I disapprove of in people? And using using those values and your own personal virtues to kind of craft uh, craft a strategy to become the person that you would most admire. That's that's the end goal. And so you you want to earn your own admiration through your life and your actions. And and uh, and this is kind of uh, it's all strategic for for doing that. Right, right. And you're very much focusing on looking at, at the areas where you can demonstrate more of your goodness. Um, and what about the, the, the sin? You know, is it, an, where does eliminating sin feature in your model? Or maybe it doesn't, maybe it's just focus on the good stuff. Yeah, it, it doesn't focus on it for sure. I, I use the word vice like three times maybe in the book. Uh, it's mostly about building your virtues, but obviously if you are doing things that are vicious, if you're doing things that are harming others, this is damaging your own opinion of yourself, right? Obviously, if you're doing antisocial actions, if you're being dishonest in your life, right? These are things that are going to make you see yourself as a dishonest, vicious person and, and admire yourself less, assuming, which I think is a safe assumption, that you do value things like benevolence and honesty that I think are pretty universal. So uh, I, I think it absolutely needs to play a role for people who are doing this kind of thing. I think part of it's just that um, there are a lot of areas where I'm lacking in virtue, but there's not a lot of areas where I have what I would call vices that where I'm doing destructive, you know, negative things. But I know some people uh, are not that way and probably they need to focus a little more on, on diminishing their vices and their weaknesses. Yeah, because that, that was my reflection on reading the book because I think 
to put it in your terms, a lot of my virtual development has come from through the elimination of you know, addictions and compulsive behaviors and so on. And I've developed, you know, devoted a massive chunk of my own sort of self-development effort in eliminating vice as opposed to developing virtue. Yeah, it, it does make sense for a lot of people to focus on that. I think one of the reasons uh, is that I, I do want to get away from the sort of transgressive, these are the bad things type of ethics that I think our culture is, has been uh, immersed in for a while. I, I think it's often better to focus on your strengths and, and to double down on your strengths as opposed to focusing overly much on your weaknesses. And that's been echoed by, you know, positive psychologists as well. But um, yeah, there, there will be cases where you have uh, some, you know, vice that's really extreme that, that that really needs to be your main focus, I think. Right, right. Got it. And, and then you, you've got this, this, this fascinating idea of, of social esteem and, and how that plays into uh, how we think about depression. Yeah, could you expand on that? Yeah, so I've I've been studying depression for like a decade now. I've, I've always been very curious about what causes this, and and uh, it, you know it, the causes often seem very mysterious. There's clearly a common thread when we when we look at the data on depression and all these different patients who get depressed. But uh, I've been trying to piece it together for a long time, and one of the biggest questions that has come up in my mind, particularly as I've gotten more and more into evolutionary psychology, is why does this state exist? Why would clinical depression ever happen if it seems to have only crippling effects on us, right? I mean, there's no way that those genes that cause that should have been preserved for, you know, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years, if it only has a negative effect on our genes and our genetic sort of reproduction. And so I started considering whether depression could be an adaptation from a genetic standpoint, right? Is it possible that it actually serves us in some way or at least serves our genes? And I found more and more when you look at the data on this, depression doesn't look like a normal pathology. For example, it doesn't get more and more common as we age. Uh, most people who end up getting depressed, they have their first episode of depression in, in or before their 20s. Uh, and so. Uh, there are a number of other things that sort of line up with this idea that it's not a disease in the same sense that many other uh, of these negative things are. It, it may have come about for a reason in our minds. And so that led me to this view that depression uh, may be the result of our minds trying to optimize our social esteem, our social status in many ways, um, or, or at least prevent us from damaging our social status. Because um, if, you, if you look at it, really, a, a lot of what the traits that make humans unique, I think, are, are uh, they came about not for our survival, but for our uh, ability to contend in a social landscape and, and to attract mates and allies and, and things like this. This is more than likely why we have the extreme creative intelligence that we do, the social cooperation, the generosity, right? All these all these virtues, essentially, I think many of them came about for social selection, sexual selection reasons. And so if that's the case, and if these traits really are very important uh, to our survival and our, our offspring, right, it makes sense that our minds would have built a system to 
monitor our own strengths, monitor our virtues, and, and produce different behaviors based on what it finds. And so that has led me to this idea that, well, when people are depressed, uh, we often see that they withdraw socially. They kind of lose interest in putting themselves out there, engaging in a lot of their interests, right? Doing a lot of the things they once would have done. Uh, they withdraw and they, they get uh, lethargic very often and idle. And so that, that uh, is one thing that sort of maps on to the possibility that, that it's a sort of risk-averse social strategy. Depression is triggered when you are not finding yourself approvable, and hence your tribe likely wouldn't find you approvable either. And so it says, stop, don't do any more damage. Don't put yourself out there right now. Just stay home. Don't, don't do anything because uh, you're not currently approvable. You need to work on this before you get back out there. And, and on the other side, we see people who are deeply satisfied. They have lots of energy. They, they sort of want to socialize. They want to put themselves out there. And I think that could be a social sort of exploitative strategy. Put yourself out there while, you, while you're highly approvable and, and your tribe is going to like you and, and you're going to be able to attract mates. And, uh, and, and hence, um, you know, we see this good mood full of energy and interest and motivation. Right. And, and so I suppose what we would then expect to see that people in terms of their social esteem uh, and their social status by extension would increase after periods of depression. And is there any evidence to suggest that happens? No, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, um, I, think, I, I think the main focus is at least don't do any damage to your social esteem, right? I mean, there are some people who tragically, you know, don't ever really recover from depression. And so um, in those cases, I, I think, you know, unfortunately, they, they didn't find a way to leverage those virtues and, and bring them out. Or, you know, there's, there's another possibility that, that definitely needs to be said, which is that we often develop distorted views of ourselves and our virtues, particularly in the modern world. So it's not necessarily the case that people who are depressed, you know, don't have any virtues or they aren't bringing them out. In some cases, everyone else can see their virtues, but they can't. And, and so that's mm -hmm. another good question as to why those cases happen. Um, but I think it's also important to note that our minds are really what's doing the evaluations of us and, uh, and regulating our moods accordingly. And so social status isn't actually the ultimate judge of this. Our own brains are because we've developed this system in here. And so really, it's most important that we approve of ourselves and that we appeal to our own values, right? And, and the, that's sort of there for social status reasons. But social status is actually secondary fr from our standpoint. In right. It's like our internal proxy that, that sort of helps us regulate amongst the group, something like exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Okay. Uh, and, and I'm just, because I've never had depression, but I'm, you know, I, I, so I'm curious then, do we tend, because what would be consistent with that with people in that when they're in a state of depression, presumably they would be considering, you know, different ways to express themselves in the world or, or, or contemplating their identity and how they might engage in, in different activities. I mean, what, 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 what's the sort of work that, that people undertake during periods of depression? Yeah, so I, I think there is some evidence that uh, people who are depressed improve in their social sort of cognition. They do a lot of rumination, certainly, and reflecting on uh, you know their own worth and their own 
uh, approvability. I mean, we see this kind of self-critical rumination going on uh, in depression constantly. I don't think there's as much evidence on strategizing and, and uh, you know, effectively navigating. And I think one way to think about this is if, if you were already able to do, do something that would improve your approvability, your virtue, your social status, you would have been doing it already, right? You're, you're, you know, if, mm. if the brain could have just made that happen, um, you know, if it had extra reserves of strategizing ability, right, it wouldn't have made you depressed. It wouldn't have needed to. It just would have been doing that in the first place. So the idea is sort of that you, you're already doing your best. And, uh, and as a result, a very different strategy is needed. And so I think in some ways, depression is meant to dis disengage you from the things that you were set on before. It's meant to break in some ways your current identity down to a point where you can open up to other possibilities. And so I think, uh, I think that could be a part of it. There are evolutionary you know, psychiatrists, um, psychiatrists, Randolph Nessie, for example, who's argued that depression is sort of a give up mechanism in the sense that it's meant to disengage you from things you are overly set on. And, uh, and it's interesting to note that we live in a culture that's very much centered around never give up. And so that, that could play into why depression seems so common. People haven't been able to give up on certain parts of their identity that, that aren't working, essentially. Right. So it's part of the message here is, is surrender like surrender to the suppression almost like it's serving you at some level. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think if you, uh, if you can find a different way to harness your strength, I mean, in some cases, it's, it's, I, I think it, it's going to vary. There are some cases where people do need to give up and surrender. I think there are other cases where they need to just, um, you know, we have opportunities now that, that our ancestors wouldn't have had. I mean, if if something wasn't working in your social tribe, your social status, you couldn't just like change tribes or change jobs or something. You know, today, in some ways, we have an ability to make pretty dramatic changes in our lives and and our virtue expression. And uh, and that can result in some pretty big improvements. So in some ways, the, the best thing to do if you're depressed is if you know, you know, what part of your life is responsible for the depression leave that part. If there's a, a relationship that's making you depressed, get out of that relationship, get into a healthier one that actually enables you to bring out more of your strengths. And so I, I think it's, it's going to vary for every individual. That's, uh, you know, I built a program that's very much about identifying the sources, the virtues, the, you know, the domains in your life, um, because it does vary from one individual to another. And there's a lot of introspective work that has to be done in order to figure out that strategy to go forward. Right, right. And, and I'm curious, right, have you experienced depression yourself? Have you put any of these tools to use yourself? Yeah, so I, I experienced my first episode of depression several years ago, uh, very much, you know, blindsided me in a lot of ways, because uh, I had had very high self-esteem my whole life. I mean, I, I would say healthy high, not narcissistic high, but, um, you know, and I had never experienced like a prolonged uh, funk like like this. I mean, I had had bad days, but, you know, when I went to bed and woke up the next day, it was always 
good again. And so it was very strange for me to experience a period of about nine months where I had a pretty low opinion of myself uh, for the first time in my life. And I, um, yeah, I, I had a, this kind of awful mood that just stuck around or uh, really an emptiness, you might say. And it didn't improve until some things in my life changed that, you know, map on very well to this theory, I think. So, you know, at the time I was working at this uh, company where I was, uh, you know, my role had kind of shifted. Initially, I was, you know, doing cool design, you know, vision concept work that I'm kind of good at and that I love doing. And uh, as the product cycle had evolved, I got to where I was doing more of, um, you know, more, more kind of tedious engineering drawing work. And I was really not good at it. And so uh, combine that with the fact that I was part time, uh, I, I gradually started feeling alienated and like I was, you know, not competent, essentially. Uh, I had one coworker in particular who really took an instant dislike to me and, uh, you know, was was pretty kind of sabotaging toward me. And so uh, and I also think that 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 dislike and, and some of the things that came from that caused me to start questioning some of my interpersonal virtues as well, my likability. And, and, uh, and then there was a global pandemic, of course, which is never a good thing to add on top of a identity crisis. So now I'm cut off from a lot of the areas and the communities that otherwise would have proved my brain wrong about the conclusions it was finding. And so for that period, I was kind of just locked in this negative view of myself that in some ways I didn't even think was true. Uh, and I think probably the fact that I was only sort of mildly, moderately depressed, a lot of that's because I knew on some level it wasn't true. Um, some people get so deeply sucked into those beliefs that they are fully convinced of them. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think I was at a place in my life where I really wasn't able to see a lot of those virtues that I had always prided myself on. And I started sort of believing I didn't have them. And that's why there was such a quick shift in my mood when I did get out of that job. I did get into another uh, position, another, you know, job where I was now bringing a ton of value with my creativity every day, essentially, and building this business. And, and uh, you know, my book sort of enabling a lot of these domains that I wasn't able to bring out before. So I didn't have a good outlet for my wisdom and my rationality and, and a lot of these other strengths that now I had a place to bring out. And so it was a total 180 in my mood that happened over the course of just a couple months, essentially. Right. And, and so what was the, what was there a sort of a pivot point then where you, you kind of twigged that, ah, this is, this is actually about principally about my job and I, and, and I need to change my job or was it just like luck that circumstances shifted for you? I don't think it was just about my job. I think, um, you know, one of the things that I was grappling with, you know, that coworker who didn't like me, at one point she diagnosed me with autism, essentially. Uh, I, you know, unsolicited completely. <laughs> Sounds like a lovely person, right? But yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so I was grappling with that as well in my own identity and, and questioning whether that means I have a disorder and I'm not likable. And, and I think working through a lot of that too and and proving that wrong in some ways getting um getting back to where i could we could uh, go outside again and 
and uh, connect with communities again and see, oh, people do like me. It's just this one person that really didn't like me. And, um, you know, so I think there's a lot of shifts that took place in that short amount of time that uh, changed the conditions pretty dramatically in terms of the strengths I was able to bring out and see evidence of myself. Right. I, and, and what was the catalyst then for you, for you making the move? Because presumably you, you quit your job. You know, was it, were, were there any sort of proactive steps that maybe people can learn from or listening that had you get to the place where you could make the pivot? Yeah, well, so the pivot was a challenge because this was the middle of a pandemic where a lot of companies weren't sure what's coming next. And so I felt kind of like I was trapped there for, for the first part of that year, uh, even though it, I knew it wasn't healthy for me. And so I was, you know, working on all these different levels to try to either build out my clients or, um, you know, find another maybe remote job. But um, I got connected with this, this one company, Nomad, um, that was doing some really interesting things and just starting out. And, and uh, we kind of teamed up on some projects and, and it went really well. And then I sort of saw the opportunity to shift over, replace my part-time gig with this new one where uh, we were going to be doing much more interesting things that required much more of my strengths. And so, and, and it was all kind of this middle period where I was hoping that this book that I was writing would be successful and then I wouldn't have to have this work. But in this, in this middle period, I sort of made the call that like, I still need to leave, even though uh, I was only planning on staying here for maybe another several months, I still need to shift over to this other thing. And so all of it, uh, all of it was very beneficial and much needed, I think, for my mental health. Yeah, yeah. But it it sounds it sounds to me like one of the things you had in in your uh, the advantage of you was the fact that you had at some level a knowledge that this woman didn't have the right opinion about me. This job wasn't right for me. So you had a, a kind of enough awareness to build a path out of it, right? Yeah, I think I think my familiarity with like cognitive behavioral therapy and that kind of thing served me well in not, you know, making this worse because you you do learn when you study these things that there are distorted beliefs at the heart of depression in, in most cases. And so I'd studied all these distortions uh, well enough that I was, you know, writing a book at the time, teaching them to people, my first book. And so, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I think that was a big part of the buffer that that kept things from getting worse is the familiarity with that and knowing uh, that there a lot of this probably isn't true and it's my brain making it up. I think also my my partner was a big part of why it wasn't worse because I I had a very healthy loving relationship and I did you know, I was able to use that as a domain to bring out some of my strengths at the time. A lot of a lot of things I'm very thankful for through that period. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um. And now, towards the end of this book, you, um, yeah, you talk uh, about this this virtue vision, seeing your strengths clearly. What's um, you know, what are we've talked earlier about looking at the people you admire and making a list of those virtues? Is there anything else that can help people to to see what their strengths are and 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 build more self approval? Yeah, one of the things I encourage people to do is is take Martin Seligman's uh, signature strengths test um, through the the Virtues in Action Institute, 
really good test. It's, it's pretty long, but there's a brief strengths version as well if you don't have as much time. But it's basically a quiz just to help you flesh out you know, what these signature strengths are, what these virtues are that I've always sort of thrived at. Um, and, uh, and it'll give you a list of five core things that, you know, in some cases you may not have been very conscious of, but once you see them, you, you'll, you'll be like, oh yeah, obviously that's been a huge thing. Um, you, you can also ask, you know, friends, ask family, you can literally send a text to, you know, a bunch of people, you know, and say, Hey, what do you, what do you think I'm doing? Uh, like, what do you think I'm really good at? I'm doing this for a book I'm reading or whatever you can <laughs> say, but, um, you know, actually do it because you'll, you'll often learn some really new, interesting things. I mean, I've had people say like, everyone I asked told me the same thing and it's one I never would have thought of. And so right. that's another method you can, you can also just, you know, create your own list based on just thinking through different periods of your life. What, what did I, what was energizing me? What was I really good at in this period? And, um, use all these tools to create sort of a master list and, you know, you can organize and, and categorize them, but really focusing on those deepest strengths that have been sort of fighting to get out your whole life and, and using that as a blueprint essentially for where should I go next? How do I uh, let my life evolve according to these strengths? Right. And when you went through that process, did anything surprise you about your own strengths? Uh, you know, I, um, I'm I'm a very introspective person, so I've been asking a lot of these questions for my whole life. I mean, I had like a color-coded mind map of my identity at one point, um, and so I uh, I don't I don't think anything surprised me there, but I I do think I needed to maybe reprioritize some things that are that were a deep part of me. So um, yeah, I I think I I think it's very important that I always have an outlet for my ingenuity, for example, if I get to a place where I'm doing more technical work, and I'm not able to bring creativity to it, I think that's, that's a dangerous place for me. Um, you know, I, I also think I need to bring, you know, charm and humor out in, in my personal life as well, because I, I sometimes forget about my own emotional needs and interpersonal strengths, and, and those kind of get buried. And so, uh, it's uh, it's important to, to keep these top of mind as you're sort of going through your life. And do you have any tips then or strategies to for people to keep these things top of mind, to keep their virtues you know, close in their awareness? Uh, I, I guess one thing I would say is that, um, you know, we used to have a like church, essentially a place where we went to remind us of the things we care about and that matter, but many of us aren't religious today, and we don't have this thing that we go to every week that sort of reminds us, you know, regardless of what uh, your work conditions into you or what society tells you, like this is what actually matters to you. And so, in some ways, uh, Mindform, which is my sort of community platform, it's a kind of uh, secular, almost like religious community or um, you know, uh, you could call it a training gym for your mind. It's a, a membership platform designed around virtue and self-mastery and our, our values and our well-being. And so I think having a community like that, a place where you uh, can connect with other people around these things that actually matter to you, because uh, there's not really another good place in modern society for doing that, I think is really important. Yeah, that's a great point. And we see a lot of these communities 
bubbling up now, right? Where people come together to develop themselves. It, it, yeah, we, we seem to see a sort of reemergence of that in a different form, as you say, you know, which perhaps replaced the, the church. Yeah, and I'm, I'm hoping to build, you know, more, more actual in-person uh, versions of this in the future. Right now, I've got an online community, but I want there to be a place that's almost like a, a gym membership, only it's a, a gym for your mind where you can go and, uh, and connect with other people and have almost like uh, group therapy sessions and, and work on your, uh, your personal development and wisdom and uh, these things that really matter, but that, uh, you know, haven't been built into our, our economic systems as deeply. Mm. Now, haven't you met, haven't heard you mention the, the G word does, um, you know, where does spirituality play a role in that, in this, you know, if at all? Uh, I, I certainly think it can for some people. I mean, I, I personally am not religious. I was for, you know, the early years of my life, but I will, um, I will say that I, I see religion acting as a major vessel for people to bring out their strengths for those who are religious. I look at religious communities and, and in some ways I'm envious because they do have uh, like tight knit communities in a way that most of us don't. And so um, I, I think having that kind of purpose, something that you believe in and care deeply about can serve as a great vessel for your strengths. And again, in some ways, I think we need secular alternatives to that for those who don't uh, believe those things. But I think, um, you know, spirituality can be bigger than than just religion in terms of what it means. And I think uh, a lot of the ideas found in, in philosophies like Buddhism and, uh, you know, mindfulness and that kind of thing uh, can definitely play a role in, in all this. I think, you know, mindfulness is an incredible tool for uh, actually observing your mind, observing your thoughts, uh, getting clarity on yourself and, and Many, many people describe it as a spiritual experience, too. So I think that all this can play into, um, play into a good, virtuous life. Right. But one thing I found interesting in the book was you, you made this distinction uh, between sort of Eastern and Western approaches to, to spiritual life, if you like, and, and this focus, particularly with the Stoics, on development of ego versus yeah. perhaps, you know, uh, a desire to let go of ego from an Eastern perspective. Yeah. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. So there is kind of what, what I think of as kind of a cultural dogma today where we, we've all sort of accepted, at least those who are in, into the sort of spirituality, self-help space, uh, that the ego is our enemy, that the ego is a bad thing and that the goal of spiritual growth and happiness is essentially to quash it, to, to get rid of our ego so we're no longer thinking about ourselves. Well, if this sort of theory that I lay out in this book is right, and there is a self-appraisal system in our brains that's sort of running the show and regulating our well-being, you really ideally wouldn't want to eliminate your ego. You wouldn't want to eliminate your own sense of self because that's what's generating that eudaimonia, right? That's what uh, the ancients kind of said is you you behave virtuously so so as to improve your own view of yourself in an accurate way. I mean, not just artificially inflating your view of yourself, but really becoming that person that you admire. That's the deepest kind of happiness you can get. And so I think by trying to eliminate your ego, you're both eliminating the one of the greatest sources of suffering, yes, because uh, a lot of people who are miserable, you know, hate themselves and they can't 
stop thinking about how uh, they don't approve of themselves. So yes, you're not going to hit the lowest low if you eliminate your ego, but you're not going to hit the highest high either. You're sort of taking the batteries out of the happiness, unhappiness machine in your brain. And so, yeah, I, I think the whole spiritual enlightenment, ego transcendence thing would be a, a relief. It would feel like bliss to someone who had been in a really depressive state. And I think that's what we see in people like Eckhart Tolle, who, you know, have written books about how, you know, they he was depressed and he hated himself. And, and then one day he just had this enlightenment experience where he no longer had a self and it was bliss. And he just sat on park benches and listen to birds chirp. And I think it would, it would feel like that if you were really depressed and really disliked yourself. But I also think, um, you know, today there's a very good chance that Eckhart Tolle, uh, you know, has a very positive identity and, and does have a sense of self because he's become, uh, you know, someone he's proud of. He's become this guru, this, this thinker that, uh, you know, is best-selling author. People come, you know, travel throughout the world to hear what he has to say. And so I think this is, probably exp explains the experience of a lot of gurus. They go from, you might say, negative one to zero to one on a, on a scale of happiness. And that zero is essentially the ego transcendence. It, it's better than negative, but it's not as good as it can be. And so that's, and that's why I think, you know, maybe, maybe mindfulness can be used as a tool. Maybe you can go through periods where you step away from your ego, but Ultimately, you do it to design a better ego. You do it so you can step back in to a, a strong, positive sense of self instead of just no sense of self. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, an interesting. And does that map on to the, the idea of spiritual bypass? Uh, explain, explain spiritual bypass for me. Well, so, I mean, spiritual bypass is... Um, is, is effectively use, using spiritual techniques to to avoid oneself, right? To mm. to uh, yeah, avoid the ego, yeah. to avoid negative, and so on, without necessarily developing developing ourselves or engaging in our emotional bodies and and so on. And it, and, and I first heard the term; it was used by a therapist yeah, a long time ago. She she was um, very much a specialist in trauma release work, and she dealt with a monk who said he'd spent you know twenty years. You know, meditating in a monastery, but finally realized he, he actually had to come back down to earth and do some work on his childhood. Uh, mm. And he'd, he'd been in a sort of semi-permanent state of spiritual bypass. Yeah, I think, I think it sounds like that absolutely maps onto it. I, I, think, uh, I think that's part of what the outcome would be if you really practiced uh, spirituality diligently with the goal of, you know, enlightenment. I think you would be avoiding in some ways that the, your own virtues, your own values, your own approval of yourself. And so I, I think, uh, I think it's important to, you know, maybe use it as a temporary tool, but ultimately always come back. I, I like to sometimes think of it as like, uh, imagine you're creating a painting, you're trying to create the most beautiful painting you can, but you're right up close to it. Um, you know, you can't get a full view of it. So you need to take a step back away from the canvas and, and kind of look at it from a distance so you can come back in and do it better. But a lot of people, they take a step back and they take another step back and they think the goal is to just keep stepping back <laughs> till they leave the continent, right? Um, yeah. So ultimately, you, you want to go back in and so build that better back on the horizon, right? But yeah, you <laughs> exactly. Can yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no. No, sorry, I interrupted you. Go on, you finish your point. No, I, I think I, I about wrapped it up. But, right. but yeah, cool. going back into that self and, and building a better 
ego, designing a better self. Yeah, yeah, really engaging. Yeah, that makes um makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, Ryan, we've we've been having a fantastic conversation. Is there anything that we've not covered that you'd have liked to touched on in terms of this this idea you've got becoming who you are, developing your virtues? Yeah, it's a good question. We, we've kind of jumped through uh, most of the whole book here. I think. Um, let's uh let's see now i i um i mean there are lots of kind of smaller topics we could dive into i, I think for example one, one of the areas that you you see a lot of people getting hung up on is is they'll talk about meaning as being the most important thing in their life um or the most important determinant they'll say things similar to what i've said about how pleasure and success aren't the real determinants but they'll say what you need is meaning. And I actually have kind of challenged some of this in the book as well. It's kind of like the spiritual assumption. I think the meaning assumption, meaning is, is uh, almost a philosophical mystery meat. It gets used uh, in a lot of ways and no one really knows what meaning means in, in some ways. And when I look back at my life and I ask, well, what, what were the best periods of my life? I don't actually find that, that meaning is that huge a part of it or that purpose or uh, whatever you want to call it. I mean, if I think about uh, when I was in college, for example, I, um, you know, I didn't have a clear sense of purpose or meaning or what I wanted to do. You know, I, I didn't have a fully crystallized worldview even at that time. Things were in flux, but I had community. I had, uh, you know, endless opportunities for for learning and mastery, and and I was able to bring out my strengths really well, but. I, I didn't feel that it was that deeply purposeful or meaningful. And it was a very good time in my life. And I can imagine, too, a scenario where, uh, you know, I would feel this great sense of purpose. And like I was doing, if I imagine I was like an accountant for a, a important charity and I felt it was meaningful, but it wasn't really what I was good at. It wasn't bringing out my virtues. Um, I could imagine being miserable and, and feeling guilty about it because I'm doing something good that I'm, I should be doing. And so I think in some ways, this concept of meaning can be a distraction to the actual determinant of the good life, which does, I think, come down to this virtue thing. I don't know if you found uh, something similar, or if, you, if your experience clashes with that, but I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, no, I, it, it is interesting that I don't, you know, I do, I do reflect on my purpose and I, I you know, regularly journal on my purpose and I'll sort of come up and I'll kind of have an evolving sense of what my purpose is in life. Uh, how much of a contributor is it to my well-being? That's a great question. I'm not. I'm not sure it really is. It's probably more of the other, other disciplines in my life that, yeah, do, you know, it's 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 having my morning routine. It's doing my meditation. It's getting it's getting to the gym. It's eating well. It's you know feeling like I'm you know being productive, being creative, which is another nice strength. You're right, actually. I'm not sure. Yeah, how much of a of a role it plays in my overall well-being? It, it is interesting because I I've certainly think that I'm doing something good that's that's improving life for other people. And, and that's nice to know. It's sort of a cherry on top, but I don't think it's the, the foundation. I, I think, you know, I, I don't think you necessarily have to believe you're enacting this transcendent purpose. I think it's really, um, that's a bonus if you can do that, but I don't know if it's really the heart of what the, the good life is about. So, yeah. But then coming back to my earlier point, I think that the single biggest contributor to my well-being has been the elimination of, 
advice because mm. if I'm, you know, from, from thinking about my, uh, you know, my alcoholic days, if I'm getting up at, you know, middle of the morning and, you know, and I'm hungover and I've probably done a bunch of stuff I was ashamed about the night before, it's, you know, even though I might spend the rest of that day at some level expressing my virtues, it's, it's very, now looking at it through your model, in those periods, not that I was ever really became depressed, but it was very difficult for me to have high self-approval. Yeah, and, and that maps on very well. I mean, if you think about it, there have been a lot of attempts in the past to create a reason for us to do the right thing. Uh, you know, there was, you know, an omniscient judge who was going to determine your place in the afterlife if you didn't do the right thing. There's a karmic cycle of rebirth, you know, based on your actions. And so I think it's interesting to propose a mechanism in our brains that essentially serves the same purpose of giving us a reason to do the right thing, even if no one's watching. I mean, um, you know, if you find a wallet with thousands of dollars in it and, and you can keep it and no one will ever know, uh, or you can return it, right? Seemingly, there are no consequences. But the most important person is always watching. Your own brain is watching you and it's determining your well-being. And in many ways, uh, you know, becoming a person you yourself don't approve of is the worst prison that you can end up in in life. So. Uh, you really need to treat this mechanism in your brain in almost a sacred way and, and not do anything that you wouldn't approve of if you can, uh, if you can help it or, or gradually at least work to become more approvable in your own mind. Yeah, yeah, and that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, it, and it really challenges something I've been reflecting on recently about, you know, we're seeing a lot in the press and so on, uh, especially in the corporate space where I do a lot of work on, you know, mental health, mental health days, the importance of mental health and so on. And, and it's, it seems to me somehow, somehow missing the bigger picture, right? Mental health, it, it feels to me, is a consequence of, you know, from what you're saying, the, the level to which we're, we're virtuous in our life, right? And so could, could we think about having, you know, a virtue week or a virtue day or yeah. a, a, a sort of virtue officer in companies, right? But, but thinking more <laughs> into, in those terms seems to be like a you know, pretty compelling uh, possibility. Yeah, a lot of the the mental health space and like positive psychology, they they sort of focus on these micro habits that are slightly correlated with happiness. Um, and and I do think a lot of it misses the big picture. Uh, you know, actually Martin Seligman, who's the kind of the founder of positive psychology, he actually has talked a lot about virtue though, and he he's basically said this is my formula for the good life. It's using your signature strengths every day. And so he has done a lot of studies that have found that if you uh, sort of brainstorm, what's a new way I can exercise one of my strengths, and you put that into practice, that's, that's actually a really effective exercise for, you know, diminishing depression or warding off depression and, and producing happiness. So I definitely think, you know, if we had virtue officers and in, in companies and, you know, things that prompted people to really think about new ways to exercise their virtues, I think that would be a really Really powerful practice. Yeah. Virtue first aider. Virtue first aider rather than mental right. health person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fun to think about that. Okay. Well, uh, Ryan, this has been uh, fantastic. Um, talking about virtuous life, I'm going to get back and take my son to a horse riding lesson. He's, uh, he's uh, very into that. So uh, definitely. Nice. It, 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 yeah. It, uh, elevates my level of self-approval when I do something for my kids. So. Awesome. Fabulous. All right. So for people who want to, you're interested in joining your community, getting, getting on your programs, it's, um, it's designing the mind 
yeah, give people the URL and, and where they can sign up. Yeah, best place to go is designingthemind.org slash becoming. Uh, if you go there, you will, one, you'll see all the links to pre-order the new book, which is now available. We're trying to go really big on this pre-order process. So um, you can get the, the Kindle version for only $2. It's kind of crazy. Uh, that will not be there for long. But you can also um, join my email list. I'll send you two free books if you do. Uh, the Psychotex Toolkit and the Book of Self-Mastery, which is sort of a quote collection and compilation and, and commentary. And so, um, yeah, it's all at that link. If you go there and and uh, go from there, that'd be awesome. Fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, and, and I had I didn't read the full book, but uh, yeah, I can certainly recommend. You know, it's, it's very well written. It's well sourced. You've got a bunch of stats and yeah and i and i think it's a pretty novel contribution uh it's not like i've read the entire wealth of literature on depression but yeah i'd certainly not heard the arguments you make about the sort of social esteem uh before so yeah great yeah well, i appreciate that and and thanks for having me on i really enjoyed it brilliant no thanks again ryan this has been awesome thank you and we'll and of course yeah we'll um we'll also uh make sure there's a specific link for the, for the pre-order as well yeah perfect great. all right thanks ryan The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.